Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege we have to reflect upon it together. And we ask as we look into your word again this morning that you would be the one that teaches us and guides us. Lord, you know what you want to say to each one of us today. Give us ears and an open heart and mind to listen to you and to your voice. For we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. When was the last time where you wanted to be able to turn the clock back? You know what I mean? When you have one of those kind of moments where... In hindsight, you think, oh, if only I'd have done that slightly differently. If only I'd have said something different to what I said. If only I'd have done something different to what I actually did. One of those moments where you just had a kind of an attitude relapse. Do you know what I mean? Have you, am I the only one that's ever had that? No, I didn't think so. You think, if only I could just turn the clock back just a few hours, just, just before that thing happened. Then I could have said something different, done something different. Why? Why did I say that? I heard about this guy called Ralph. He was woken at five in the morning. Not the best time for him. There was this banging on his roof. And so he wondered what it was. He thought it's a bit early for workmen to be up there. So he went outside and he found a woodpecker knocking on his aerial. And it was just tapping away. So irritating. So he went, ah. So he tried to shoo it away, nothing happened, so he got a stone and he threw it high up at his house, at the top of his house, to try and hit the woodpecker. He missed. And the the stone went sailing right over his house and then he heard this crash as it obviously hit somebody else's car that was parked the other side out in the front street. And he just went, oh man! And he went and he kicked the ground with his foot. And then he suddenly remembered that he didn't have any shoes or socks on at the time. Ended up breaking his toes. He wished at that moment, while he was screaming in agony, that he could turn the clock back just for five minutes. And when he heard that little tapping and that banging on his roof, he could have just rolled over and went, ah, that's just a woodpecker. And went and gone back to sleep. But instead, he ended up in A&E with a broken toe. The thing is that what happens in those moments is that the core of who we are comes out, isn't it? It's like in those moments when you're either too tired or stressed or angry or whatever it is, that actually the filters that we put in place suddenly evaporate, don't they? When you're driving along on the, well, driving and the M25 don't really go together, do they? But when you're sitting in your car on the M25, and you see up there on this sign, the problem is, I tell you, on the M25, you see this sign and it says, Q after next junction, right? Now, the, the first question you have is, do I believe this or do I not? Because sometimes, if you're like me, you've driven on, there's no one there. It's completely empty. It was from like yesterday and nobody's bothered to change the sign. And other times you go on and you think, maybe, maybe I'm just going to get lucky today. And there you're stuck for the next five hours while you're creeping along in the, in the lane that you've chosen to be in and everybody else is just zooming by in the other lanes. And that's what happens. 
And then you get really angry because somebody starts pushing in. And what happens in those moments? The filters, the Christian facade, the, the, the prayerful attitude and the holiness evaporates. You know, dare they do that. And you get angry with them. How dare they push in? They're just blocking it up. Don't they know what's going on? And if they'd have just stayed in their lane, we'd get there a lot quicker and all these other things. Have you ever been in a car when somebody's been driving like that? So have I. It's never us, of course. But what happens in those moments is that the heart, what's inside of us, actually comes out. Well, a lady once tried to rationalise that uh, she had a bit of an anger problem because she used to just get really angry and just, bleh, used to just come out. And she said, there's nothing wrong with my anger being like that. I, I just let it out and then it's all done and dusted. I don't harbour any resentment. It's far better I do that. And the preacher or the minister that she was talking to said, you know what? You're kind of like a shotgun. And when you fire a shotgun... Think about all the debris that it causes all around. Jesus talks so often, the Bible talks so often about what's going on inside more than outside. Because Jesus knew and we know that if we get the inside bit right, then the outside just follows. Doesn't it? You know, I don't know what happens with babies when they hit two years of age. But their insides change overnight. You have a party, they wake up, and then we call it the terrible twos. Why? Because all of a sudden their insides become like me, 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 me. And instead of being cute and cuddly and everyone, oh, it's just a little baby, oh, lovely, lovely, lovely. Uh, instead of that, it becomes terrible. And it's just like grabbing everything. But we're like that, surely in our attitude sometimes. And so Jesus talks about the need to transform the core of who we are. The, probably the best passage that he deals with that is what we call the Sermon on the Mount. It's found in Matthew's Gospel, chapters 5 to 7. And the whole thing there is Jesus talking about what should be inside of us. He talks about things like you know, that, that about anger and he says like, if you get angry with someone, even if you don't show it, if you say it in your heart, it's the same as doing it outside. Because Jesus is looking at the core of who we are. And over the next few weeks, we're going to look at the start of what he says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. If you've got your Bibles, turn to that right now. Because in Matthew 5, at the beginning, he comes up with what we call the Beatitudes, blessed Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And he says these are the characteristics that we need to have in our hearts, in the core of who we are. If you want to know what a definition of a believer is, It's right here. These characteristics are what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And as we look at them over the next number of weeks, I think it's going to do two things for us. I pray that it does. 
First, it will describe the qualities that make up a believer. These are the qualities that we need to look at and say, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's not about coming to church, it's about having these in the core of who we are. And the second thing it will do, it will be like a, a, a mirror to us. And as we go through each one, as we unpack it and, and think about it, we can allow God's Spirit to say to each one of us, How am I doing? Am I poor in spirit? Because that's what I need to be, to be a follower of Jesus. And we can allow God's Spirit to come in and transform us over these next few weeks as we ponder these together. Jesus said in Matthew 5 verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now blessed means kind of fortunate, happy. But it's not a happiness that's derived from us. It really means to enlarge, to grow bigger. And what he's saying is that blessed means that it's like God is pouring out his blessing upon you, upon me. God pours out his blessing on those who are poor in spirit. That's what he's saying. It's not something that we gain, it's something that he gives to us when we're poor in spirit. But what does that mean to be poor in spirit? Because surely we need more of God's spirit within us, don't we? We don't want to be poor in spirit, we want to be rich in spirit, don't we? So what's he really saying? Blessed are those, God's going to pour out his blessing on those who are poor in spirit. Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, we know what it means to be poor. We know what it means to have a spirit, God's spirit, our spirit, connecting with God. But what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, let's look in our Bibles at an example. In Luke, turn in your Bibles to Luke 18. It's a familiar story. But it's a great story that describes what it means to be poor in spirit. Now here in Luke 18, Jesus is telling a joke. It's really what it's all about. We call it a parable in the Bible, because that's a spiritual way of saying it. But really it's a joke. And it's a joke between two men, two people. It's like saying there was an Englishman and a Scotsman. Right? They went out this one day. And when I say that, you already have a stereotype of an Englishman. Tea drinkers with their little finger up in the air. Right? Very upright, prim, proper, face, stiff upper lip and all that, right? Quintessential Englishman. And then you've got an image of a Scotsman. I better not go into that, had I really? Right? In case there are Scots here. Alright? So you know what a Scotsman, typical Scots in all the jokes? Tight, you know? And so on, right? Or if I would say there's an Englishman and an Irishman. Alright? Canadians, they always use Newfies, which are people from Newfoundland. All the Canadian jokes are about Newfoundlanders. Don't ask me why, they just are. Because there's a stereotypical. If you say blondes from Essex, stereotypical image. And Jesus is doing exactly the same thing here. He says there are two people, there's a Pharisee and there's a tax collector. And everybody knew exactly what he was talking about. 
Now the difficulty for us is that we have uh, a negative image already of a Pharisee, don't we? Well, how would you describe a Pharisee? Proud, selfish, legalistic, hypocritical, all these things. See, there was a Pharisee. We've all got this in our minds. But the people of Jesus' day didn't see Pharisees in quite the same light as we do. We see them like that partly because Jesus was saying all these things about them. But in Jesus' day, the people would have seen the Pharisees as leaders of their community. Now you have to remember the history of the people of Israel. Israel came out of Egypt, they went into the promised land, you know the story. And then after hundreds of years there, what happened? Well they sinned against God and finally God brought in the Assyrians, the Babylonians, they were taken off into exile. Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was done away with. And then what happened was that there was a group of leaders that got together when they were in exile and said... We're in danger of vanishing completely. How do we keep together our faith? How can we keep it going? And these Pharisees got together and they said, you know what, we need, this is so vital, we've got to keep the faith alive. So we're going to teach generation after generation what it means to be a Jew. We're going to set up synagogues, because we, we haven't got the temple, we're miles from Jerusalem. But we'll set up synagogues and we'll try and keep the feasts and we'll do this and we'll do that. And we'll keep everything going until that time when we can go back to Jerusalem in the future and rebuild the temple. It's our responsibility to keep it going. You see that all over the world today. You know, when I, years ago when I, was, uh, when I was in Africa in Uganda. You know, you see all the... There's, in every country there'll be a, a club for English people where they go and they celebrate St George's Day and they drink tea and they play polo on the lawns and croquet and all these other things, right? And it's a little bit of England in the middle of Uganda where I was or wherever it is. Why? Because you keep that kind of going. Even in our history, our Station Road Church was a church where the Scots who came down from Scotland to work in London, they came and they formed their own church which was Station Rose Presbyterian Church, of Scotland Presbyterian Church, where they could keep that same tradition. That's why we have the Caledonian service here once a year. Part of that tradition of maintaining those kind of cultures and so on. And the Pharisees were responsible for doing that. So they had to be pure and holy. They had to be the people that set themselves up and said, you know what, we are going to just read the law, read the Old Testament, and we're going to make sure it keeps on going. We're going to teach it to our children and to our other adults around and make sure they try and keep that. We're going to be the ones that are consistent through all the different hardships that happen while we're in exile. We're going to keep that consistency going so we do not lose. We don't lose it. The culture will not die out. The faith will not die out. And they kept the ones that would do the community events. They were the ones that would go out and feed the poor and the hungry and everything else in their community to keep it going. And so when Jesus said there was a Pharisee, people recognized who these people really were. They were leaders in their community who for centuries had kept the faith alive. That's who he's talking about. 
So there's a Pharisee in the story. There's also a tax collector. Now the tax collectors were not liked people. Because, well, you had to pay taxes. But also because of the system. Now the tax collectors were Jews. They weren't Gentiles, they were Jews. So they were part of us. And what used to happen was that the Romans would say, we need to collect taxes from Harrow. And what we're going to do is we're going to allow the highest bidder to go and collect the taxes. Right? So they would say, Melina, well, how much, you know, you, you would bid for it, Melina would bid for it, and she'd say, I'm going to get a million pounds out of the people of Harrow. You know, but then, then Tim over here would go, well I can beat that, I can get 1.2 out of the people of Harrow. I can squeeze them a bit more. And Ronnie goes, 1.2, that's nothing. I can get 1.35. And the Romans were just going, oh, this is great. And they'd say, Ronnie, you got a deal. You get us 1.35 million in taxes in Harrow. And what we're going to do is give you our army, our support, and everything else to make sure that you accomplish your task. Not only that, you can charge them as really as much as you want. So Ronnie could charge us 1.5 million, and he siphons off the one, sorry, yeah, 1.5, and he siphons off the 150,000 difference. Is that right? Yeah. 200,000 difference for himself. Okay? And that's what happened. So Ronnie would get the job, he would charge us and say, I'm sorry guys, but it's going to be 1.5 million you've got to get, or whatever it is. And then he would have the whole Roman army at his disposal to come and knock on our doors and make sure we pay up. And if we didn't, we'd be thrown in prison or flogged or whatever else. And he would make himself a nice tidy prophet and he would give the Romans what he promised them. Now, how well liked do you think Ronnie will be? Not very well liked. The rest of the band will throw him out. And as for us... There's no coffee for you, mate, after the service. You know, it's just not going to happen. That's, you see what Jesus is saying? So you've got in the story this Pharisee, well-liked, loved by everybody. Yeah, maybe a bit proud and everything else, but hey, they've got a good history. And then you've got Ronnie, the tax collector. Let's read. Luke chapter 18 verse 10 he says two men went up to the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself God I thank you that I'm not like the other men robbers, evildoers, adulterers or even like this tax collector over there I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get but the tax collector stood at a distance He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's just like Jesus saying, you know, there were two people that came to church. There's a minister from another church that comes in. And there's a local drug dealer that comes in. And the minister stands up and says a very nice prayer. And everybody goes, oh, that was a really nice prayer. And there's a drug dealer standing at the back going, crying, on his knees. Just saying, Lord, I'm really messed up. Now, which of them would you prefer to have in your church? 
And if that was you, where would you fit on this spectrum between the two? Are you more like the Pharisee? Or more like the tax collector? Where are you? See, when Jesus told this story, he would have said, everything's kind of normal here. We would have thought that. You've got this guy that fasts twice a week, and he gives a tenth of all he gets to other charities. Gives it away to help people. You've got a guy that's ripping everybody off, who comes in and just starts saying, Lord, I'm a sinner. Well, we know that. I could have told you that. You don't even have to ask God that one. We could have told you that. But he's saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. But Jesus says this in verse 14, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. Justified means put right with God. It means accepted back into God's family. Accepted for who he is. Loved. Accepted. Forgiven by Christ. Forgiven by God. He said, it's the tax collector that has all this. Whereas the Pharisee goes home in the same condition with which he came. With the same baggage that he still brought in before God. And Jesus said, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now what was the difference between these two The difference was that the tax collector had a poverty of spirit. He recognized at that moment who he was before God. And that's all that mattered to him at that moment. He didn't care about anybody else. He didn't care about what other people thought of him. All he cared about at that moment was who he was before God. His place before God. You see instances in scripture where this happens. One of the greatest ones is the book of Job. I love Job. I love the bit, well I don't like the first 37 chapters, it's a bit long winded and to be honest it gets a bit tedious. But, the last bit is amazing. You know in the book of Job, here he is, bad things happen to him. And he starts muttering and complaining, I wish I was dead, I wish I was never been born. And then his so-called friends come and give him advice as to why all these bad things have happened to him. And you get 37 chapters of all this useless advice. And all Job says is, I want God to turn up and to tell me what I've done to deserve all of this. And God shows up, finally. And God doesn't answer Job's question. But he says to Job, who do you think you are? Asking me to justify all of this. And then from verse 38 on, or chapter 38 onwards, he says, were you there when this happened? Were you there when the things were made? Do you understand how all of this works? And really what happens is that God shows Job who he is, who God is. The amazement, the magnificence of God, the awesomeness of God, the scale of God. And listen to Job's response. Here he is for 37 chapters, been saying, God, turn up, turn up. God shows up and this is what Job says. He said, then Job answered the Lord. This is in chapter 40 of of the book of Job. He says, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? 
I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. And then the Lord spoke to Job, and he asked him a whole load of questions. And that goes on for the rest of the next chapter. And then in chapter 42, right at the end, Job says, enough God, basically. He says, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. That's a poverty of spirit. That's Job at that moment realizing where he stands before an almighty God. He says, I've got nothing. I've got no answers. Who was I to demand that you, Lord, come and answer me? Who am I to say that? And that's what we see in this story here, in this joke that Jesus tells The tax collector is justified because he recognizes his position before the Almighty God. He has a poverty of spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, the problem is that our lack of poverty of spirit is so subtle. Everything around us goes contrary to a poverty of spirit. Look at all the advertising in the world around us. Look at all the media. What does it say to us? It says, you need this. You're going bald? Rub this stuff on. It will make your hair grow. Because it's not good to be bald. You know, you need, you need better foundation? Put your foundation on. Better clothes? Go here and buy them. You need an Audi TT? Because the car that you've got, it gets you from A to B, but it doesn't look as good as an Audi TT black convertible with a hood coming down. Would look. So that's what you need. And everything in our world around us says the same thing, doesn't it? If only you get this, then you will be happy. Happens in all of our lives. If only, I'll be happy. If only my children would leave home, I'll be happy. You know, if only this, we do it in relationships, we do it everywhere. And what we end up doing is comparing ourselves to one another. If only I had what Brian had, then I would be happy. You know, and Brian's saying, if only I had what David had, I'd be happy. And we spend our life comparing ourselves on a horizontal level. That's what the problem with the Pharisee was. I'm not like them. No, you're not. But who cares? What he missed was his relationship with God. Whereas the tax collector just pointed upwards to God. We do it so often. How many times do you hear? I hear all the time. Our church is better than that church. You know, a few weeks ago, 
I catch myself doing it all the time. A few weeks ago when I was on holiday, I went to one of the bigger churches in London. And I'm standing there, and I'm worshipping God, and I'm thinking, Lord, why can't our church be as full as this church? And the Lord said, shut up, David. Just shut up. That's what he said to me. Be quiet. Because why are you comparing? I've not told you. If I wanted to fill Trinity like it is, it would already be full. But I'm doing things here. And it's going to take time. And you need to be obedient to me. Stop comparing yourself with others. We do it all the time. Years ago, I had somebody used to come to me on the Methodist circuit. They always have the number of members. And they were going, David, you need to do something. We're slightly behind Wildstone. I'm going like, so? Get some more members in, you know? No. Just keep focusing there. But it's even more subtle than that. You know, I was out um, at my dad's 80th birthday party. Sitting on a table with my brother and his wife and some other of our family. And, and my, my sister-in-law started describing, or, or was chatting with another of my relatives, about my brother, who's just been made a fellow of Cambridge University. Whatever that means, but he has. Because he's into research and other things, and they've made him a fellow of the university, so there's a link there between Cambridge and his business and other things. And I'm sitting there, and I'm just getting jealous. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, she was describing about Cambridge University and how great it is and all this kind of thing and all the traditions of the university. And inside of me, you know what's going on? I'm going, I went to Oxford for two years. I studied in Oxford. I was a student in Oxford. I graduated from Oxford. And everything within me wanted to say, you know what, I went to Oxford. And Oxford's better than Cambridge. And inside of me, I was just kind of going, I was just getting jealous. And I wanted to justify myself. I wanted to say things. Fortunately, I didn't. But it was still inside of me. It was still that comparison going on that we have with our siblings so often. If you've got brothers and sisters, you probably know what I'm talking about. Where you compare yourself to them, they compare yourself to you. How well are you doing? How well are they doing? At least I'm like this. And we compare and it's that same attack that comes. We do it all the time. We compare ourselves. And what we should be doing, and what Christ said is the number one thing he said about being a follower of him. And what the Bible continually speaks to us about is that we do not compare ourselves with one another. But we just continually look to him. It's about, he says, 1 Peter, he says, be holy for I am holy. He doesn't say, look at the holiness of the people around you. Judge yourself where you feel you fit on the holiness scale with everybody else. He never says that. He says, look at God's standard. Judge yourself by that. The whole of the Sermon on the Mount is the same thing. Look at God's standard. Look at God's perfection, God's character, who he is. See how you measure up to him. Don't worry about anybody else. They, they need to do the same thing. And we need to learn the subtleness of how that affects us. 
how this looking around affects us. You know, I bet you, when we read this parable, what you did was, you started measuring yourself up against the Pharisee and the tax collector. Did you not? I did. I'm sitting there going, thank goodness I'm not like the Pharisee. But as soon as you say that, you are actually exactly where the Pharisee is. Aren't you? Because he said, thank goodness I'm not like the rest of them. And that's the cleverness of what Jesus was talking about. Because he knows that that's what our instinct tells us to do. What in our natural we will always do. We'll say, well at least I'm not like the Pharisee. But then you've just become like him. Ah! It's so subtle. The way that we cease to be poor in spirit. And pride and comparison comes into our lives. So what do you do? You do what the tax collector does. First, you recognize the subtlety of what's going on. And every time it happens, repent. What does the tax collector do? He says, God have mercy on me, for I'm a sinner. Every time you catch yourself comparing yourself to someone else, say, Lord, I'm doing it again. Every time you compare your church or your business or where you work or your family or anything else, say, Lord, I'm doing it again. Help me to stop. Lord, I'm sorry. Because all I want to be is sold out for you and for you alone. Because when we look towards God, one, a number of things happens. This is where the blessing of the kingdom of heaven is all about. Firstly, when we start looking towards God, God can then start using us in the ways that he wants to. Because we are then just focusing where we need to focus. And he says, now I've got someone that I can pour my spirit into and use. And secondly, when we are there, the outpouring goes outwards. So we just focus towards the heaven, towards God. And he will then use us and pour out his spirit so that we're a blessing to other people around us. And we will see the kingdom of heaven in reality, in our lives and in the lives of those around us. So often in churches, so often in our Christian lives, we're focused outwards and then asking God for the blessing to come. Instead of focusing towards him and allowing the blessing to move us around. Mother Teresa, she was an amazing person. She said, I have never been called to be successful, but to be faithful. That's a poverty of spirit. doesn't matter about the success of the orphanages in Calcutta. What matters is, she said, that I am faithful every moment of every day to what God is calling me to do. The results are his business, not mine. And God and Jesus said, that is what is to be in each one of us. Watch yourself this week. As you go about your daily lives this week, I want you to do two things. See how many times you can see that kind of competitiveness amongst others and how many times you catch yourself doing exactly the same thing. And when you do, just say, Lord, I'm sorry. 
help me to change. And as we do that over and over and over again, as we keep saying, Lord, done it again, help me. He will gradually change us, mould us and make us. That's the work of God's Spirit. So that we can become poor in spirit. Dependent completely on God. Listening to what God wants us to do. Obedient to where he wants us to be, what he wants us to say, how he wants us to react. Because it's not about you and it's not about me. It's all about him. One of my favourite prayers, which I, I haven't read for a while, but comes out of this little book I picked up years ago. It's a prayer or a poem by Paul Cookson. Let me read it to you, because this is what describes a poverty of spirit. He says, I'd like to see through the eyes of God, or wear a pair of his glasses just once. I wouldn't see the way you appear, the imperfections of our bodies, the blemishes or features that distract, those first impressions on which so often we're judged. I wouldn't see those human failings, but the way you really are. The smile within your soul, the kindness in your heart, and the love you have to give. I would see the formation of the wind, the hands that clap the thunder, and the sunshine at the speed of light. I would see each snowflake in a blizzard, each grain of sand on every beach. Every single one of them in perfect clarity. I would see the wings of a honeybird, a hummingbird in slow motion, the growth of the forests in the time it takes to blink, the sheen on the lion's teeth, and count the legs on caterpillars. Horizons would vanish and limits disappear. No detail too small, no feature too large. In one second I would see the whole universe, each star, each moon, the inside of the sun, and still have time to count the salt within the sea. And I would not take this in fully, for my mind is far too small. Not too small to understand the beauty, the glorious details of heaven and earth, but too small to understand the greed, the hate, the selfishness, the suffering, the sorrow and the pain, the wounds of war and the tears from abuse, the pious smiles of self-contentment and the darkness of the human spirit. And if I did see through the eyes of God, or wore his glasses just once, I would see all of creation and why he said that it is good, but also why he saw the need to give his broken, this broken world an example of himself. Perfection became flesh and bone. And Jesus wore those dusty sandals, prepared himself with nails and thorns, and walked and talked and showed us how we might overcome and how we too may see the world through the eyes of God.
We're going to listen to a piece of music. It's called Be Lifted High by Michael W. Smith. As we listen to it, just spend time praying to God, asking Him to examine you and to transform you. Sin and its ways grow old. All of my heart turns to stone. And I'm left with no strength to arise. How you need to be lifted high. Sin and its ways lead to pain. Left here with hurt and with shame. So no longer will I leave your side. Jesus, you be lifted high.
Lord, we ask that you would be lifted high as we fall to our knees. For blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Teach us this week how to be poor in spirit in our relationship with you. So that you may be lifted high as we fall to our knees time and time again. So that they may see see you and not us. For we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.